Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity, as always, to be in your Word. Father, we know from your Scripture that church, as we call it, is really nothing more than your believers, your children, gathered together in your name to worship you, Father, in spirit and in truth. And you've told us in your Word, Father, that the spirit by which we approach you is the spirit that you have planted in each believer, the Holy Spirit, Father, your part in us that brings us to know you. And Father, it is through that Spirit that we even have an interest in you, that we are even capable, Father, of knowing you. And it is by that same Spirit that we came this morning, Father, to worship, to give you a time and priority as you so richly deserve. But Father, you also say to worship you in truth. And your Word tells us, Father, that the truth that we must worship by is your Son, the Word given to us, Father, in the book before us. So, Father, we are diligent to do that as well, to pray in your word, to study your word, Father, to teach from your word, to put it central in our time this morning. Because, Father, by praising you through a study of your word, we not only please you, Father, but we can grow as well ourselves to be more like you. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be active in each heart here this morning, that we would, as we read the word, Father, know it and understand it, and make an application as well, Father, to take from it something that, with your power, we can change to be more like you. Thank you, Lord, for this building, the provisions that we have to meet, for all the men and women who give of themselves to be here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, for the regular crowd, you know we're at the end of chapter 5 in Luke. For those of you who are visiting, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up. We'll be at the very end of chapter 5 in Luke this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, there's somebody nearby who does, I'm sure, and just reach right over and grab it off their lap, put it on your lap. They won't mind at all, I'm sure. Last week in chapter 5, we had reached actually the end. We had read the verses of chapter 5 all the way to the conclusion, but I stopped short of actually discussing some of what we saw in those verses. We, We said last week we would come back into those verses this week, and we will. But again, I want to give you some context because chapter 5 in Luke really is the beginning for a much longer discussion in Luke that really takes us all the way into chapter 15 and beyond. So for the next 10 or 11 chapters, there is a central issue in focus, an issue that Luke does not want us to lose sight of, and he brings it up consistently. That issue looks at the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, the pharisaical leaders of his day. Jesus, if you remember, in chapter 5, was back in Capernaum after wandering around in the area of the Galilee. He had found himself back in the city of Capernaum teaching. He was teaching the crowds, as you know. And, of course, in performing miracles and healings, he had gained a lot of attention, a lot of positive attention. And then, as you also may remember, while we taught through Luke, we noticed the Pharisees were also beginning to give Jesus a lot of attention, although this was not the kind of attention that he necessarily wanted. This was very negative attention. In particular, they were troubled by his immense popularity. And they were troubled by the power that he had seemed to gain over the people in this region of Judea. Now remember, we said the Pharisees, they're uh, religious leaders of their day in Judea, but I think it's actually more accurate to call them religious politicians. They're really religious power brokers. They're men who feed off of their power within the context of religion, within the context of the Jewish faith, but they feed off the power it gave them in that society. 
And they were men whose power and prestige and their very livelihoods were revolving around their control over Jewish society. And they demanded respect and they demanded obedience. And they demanded that the people see them in control. And the way they maintained their control within the Jewish society was through the law, through the rules and regulations that they had taken and placed on top of the law God gave to Moses. It was not simply that they took the law and used it. Yes, they had that, but then they didn't see that as enough. They added rules and regulations of their own, piling on top of the law a structure of requirements that no one could meet. They were physically impossible, as if we needed more than the law to prove that. And the burdens that they obligated the people by were the way through which they controlled the population. So the last thing a Pharisee wanted to see was someone like Jesus showing up on the scene presenting an alternative system, essentially, an alternative to what the Pharisees favored. And I want you to consider two of Jesus' teachings from the end of chapter 5, teachings we covered last week, but to review them will help appreciate better, help us appreciate better what we're about to study at the very end of Luke. First, if you remember, we had Jesus healing the paralytic man. This is the famous story of the man who so much wanted Jesus' healing. He was on a cot, couldn't get up. Jesus was inside of a home or in a courtyard area of a home in Capernaum. And they lowered this man, his friends lowered this man on a cot through the roof into this open area within the home structure so that the guy could get right near Jesus and be healed. Jesus was so impressed with the effort they made to bring this man close that the first thing he said to this man was, do you remember? Not you will be healed. No, the first thing Jesus said to this man is, your sins have been forgiven. Remember how the Pharisees reacted to that? in the teaching we had last week, they were offended at the fact that Jesus proclaimed this man's sins forgiven. They declared that only God could do that. Only God could wipe away the debt that each man carried. And the dilemma for the Pharisees was very simple. In the moment that they were trying to discredit Jesus' claim to have the power to forgive sin, they still had to contend with the fact that He had just healed the man in an obviously supernatural way. How do you discredit somebody who has the power to turn a paralytic into a normal man who can jump up and run off? It created quite a conundrum for the Pharisees. But I'll tell you that they were even more concerned about his first statement than they were about his power to heal. Remember what we just said, the Pharisees, they had based their own power and authority on establishing and then enforcing this system of righteousness based on rules. You are good if you do what we say. And so goodness was a function of what you did. But the rules were almost impossible to do well. In fact, we know God said under the law, no man can live the law. The Pharisees had taken it another step further and added even more rules on top of that. And then they see this man show up, Jesus, with apparently power to do supernatural things, somebody they couldn't dismiss easily. And though they had taken the Mosaic Law and distorted it and added to it and changed it and made it more burdensome, Jesus comes in and says, God can forgive sin without you having to do anything. Think about what that did to their world. Think about how that messed up the Pharisees' little gig they had going here. This great little system that fed their interests, fed their pride, fed their power. Jesus shows up and says, it's just that easy? God can declare sin gone like that? Well, they're not going to have anything to do with that. I mean, for... For crying out loud, what if the people actually accepted this teaching? What if they actually believed this? It'd be madness. I mean, next thing you know, we'd have people 
accepting these free offers of forgiveness left and right, and then they'd be dispensing with all the rules. They would put aside all these requirements because they wouldn't be needed anymore. The Pharisees were not going to have any part to play in that because those rules were essential. Essential to their system. Essential to their control. And so those Pharisees now had a problem. They had established their own power and their authority on the basis of enforcing this system that a very powerful man was proposing was no longer needed for forgiveness of sin. And Jesus then goes to a tax collector. If it weren't bad enough that he undermines the purpose in all that the Pharisees had set up for their own power, then he goes one step further and he rubs salt in the wound. He steps out of that home and walks to a tax collector sitting in a booth on the side of the road collecting tax for the Romans. And this didn't just offend the sensibilities of the Pharisees that Jesus would have something to do with a tax collector. A man we said last week would have been the epitome of sinfulness from the standpoint of a Pharisee. It went one step further. He frustrated their enforcing of their control. Now, I want you to consider how this worked. You're a Pharisee. You're somebody who wants to put down those who go contrary to your way of thinking. You want to have some enforcement mechanism to deal with those who won't live under your rules. But you have a problem because you have the Roman authorities in control of Judea. They're the real power. You're simply given opportunity to act within their control. So how is a Pharisee going to step into the life of someone who won't obey, won't live under the law, won't consent to all their rules, when they're really not the ones in charge? Well, they had a very interesting way of doing that. They made you a pariah. They convinced the rest of the society within Jewish culture to have nothing to do with you. If you weren't willing to live under the Jewish law and all the pharisaical rules, then you didn't deserve any kind of attention. You didn't deserve any kind of, any kind of consolement in your times of trouble. You didn't deserve any kind of provision in your time of need. You weren't allowed to associate with the rest of Jewish culture. You were ostracized. And if anyone here has ever gone to junior high or high school, then you know how effective that technique can be in gaining compliance. The worst thing anybody wants to do is be cut out from the group, to be ostracized. But then Jesus comes along and he walks up to the very group that had been ostracized. And Jesus, a rabbi, a respected teacher, a man who really uh, pictured the Jewish religious world. I mean, he was essentially somebody who could embody that, who could represent that. And he takes that authority he has and he steps right into the life of one of these pariahs and he makes them feel welcome. And even worse, he goes to the man's home, he entertains with the man and takes time with all his friends, his other sinful friends, gets to know them and makes them all feel welcome as well. Things are falling apart left and right in front of the Pharisees. They have a man preaching something that does away with their rules and he goes and makes feel welcome those who have also put aside the religious rules of the Pharisees. This has got to be stopped. This has got to be stopped. It's anarchy if we don't put an end to this. That's what's going through the minds of these Pharisees. But that brings us now to the end of chapter 5. In the midst of this growing concern, a concern, by the way, that will continue to grow over the next ten chapters of Luke, ultimately, as you know, leading to the conspiracy of the Pharisees to put Jesus to death. Ultimately, they couldn't contend with Him any other way. They couldn't see any other way to stop Him short of putting Him to death. But we're a few chapters from that. This is at a very early stage. I want you to look with me for a minute at the end of chapter 5. 
The Pharisees, right about chapter 5, verse 30, have been talking to the disciples at this party. This party, I told you, was being held for the tax collectors and the other sinners. And the Pharisees are looking for some way to discredit Jesus. They tell the disciples that Jesus isn't respecting the customs that are common among rabbis in that day. Customs of fasting, for example. All he wants to do is have fun. All he wants to do is party. They look for a way to indict him, to shame his ministry, and they just want to find anything they can to discredit him before his ministry grows any further. And as I said, these confrontations are going to continue all the way through to the next ten or so chapters. But when we look at verse 36, we'll pick up today in verse 36 and finish out from there. Jesus begins to teach using a parable, the first parable found in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 36, I'll read through to the end of the chapter. And he, and that's speaking of Jesus, of course, and he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he would both tear the new and the piece from the new would not match the old. And no one puts wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine would burst the skins and it would be spilled out and the skins would be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. So Jesus answers the Pharisees' concerns, their concerns over his behavior, the behavior of his disciples, with this essentially two-part parable. And because it's the first parable recorded in Luke, it's worth taking a few extra moments to understand how parables work in Scripture. There's a rule within interpretation of Scripture, and it's the rule of preeminence. When something is brought to your attention for the very first time in Scripture, you ought to give more attention to it because it has added significance when it's mentioned for the first time. In this case, the first parable used in the Gospel of Luke should be given extra attention because as the first parable, it's, it's likely that God has put extra significance in that parable. So we'll look at it in that way. Let's consider what a parable does, first of all. A parable uses, first, a common everyday experience. It begins with something you and I know instinctively, something that, or at least in the culture of the day, wouldn't have required any great explanation. It was simply a part of normal life. But then, that contrast is drawn, a contrast is drawn between something you know very easily and something you probably don't know. And by what you know here, as you make a comparison to the new thing, you gain insight on the new thing. That's basically how a parable works. The idea is really quite simple, right? If an audience can understand this and can appreciate it in an everyday experience, then they're going to have a key to understanding the more difficult idea. And that's why parables were so effective. But since we're talking here about the Word of God, though, the Bible, written by men, but the words they wrote down were given to them by God through the Holy Spirit, because that's the nature of the, of the text we're reading, it's a lot more complex than the way I just described it. Before we have the teaching assistance of the Holy Spirit. Before the Holy Spirit indwells any one of us, we do not have the capability to understand a parable. Now, it's interesting. You'll tell that to someone who's an unbeliever and they look at you like you're an idiot. What do you mean I can't understand? It's written in English, isn't it? I know English. I can read this. I know exactly what it says. Okay, explain it to me then. Well, it just means you shouldn't go tearing up old clothes. Or it means that, yeah, you, you should be more careful about where you store your wine. Well, that's the obvious part, isn't it? That's this part. That's the thing everybody already knows. No kidding. What's the spiritual significance then? Well, I don't see any spiritual significance in that. It seems to me he's just talking plain old everyday stuff. Exactly. 
The problem with understanding Scripture absent the Holy Spirit is God will not allow you to understand this. It's not a matter of your intellect. God will not allow it. God prevents it. Because if in our own capacity we could understand Scripture, then it would be to our pride and to our glory that we know what the book says. And He won't allow that. He is jealous for His glory. He says that in His Word. When it's His timing and His desire through the Holy Spirit, He will reveal this more important spiritual significance. And then when that meaning and that understanding comes, we give God glory for it. We recognize that, gee, last time I read that, I had no clue what it means. Now I read it, it makes perfect sense. God has revealed it to me. That's the nature of the Word of God. In Matthew 13, Jesus answered His disciples when they asked Him why He taught in parables. And this is what He said. The disciples came to Him. This is Matthew 13.10. The disciples came to Him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? They had the same question you might have. Why do you speak in riddles? Why don't you just tell us what you mean? And this is what Jesus said. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Meaning to the Pharisees. For whoever has, to him more shall be given and will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear. So they do not understand. You hear what Jesus is saying? They see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. They get the obvious part. They don't get the underlying spiritual significance part because that's the part that depends on God granting us knowledge of. And it was not in God's plan that the Pharisees would understand what was being taught. So let's go back to the parable and let's try to understand it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Consider his comment about the garment. He says, imagine for a moment an old garment. And I'm going to use an example that I tend to prefer because it's the one that comes to mind whenever I hear this. I imagine an old pair of jeans. So I imagine this old garment, an old pair of jeans, but this garment is so worn out at this point. It's got, its, it's got to the point where a lot of jeans do where they're not just faded, but now they're torn, the knees are gone, you know, the, maybe the pocket's hanging off the back. And they're really not serviceable. If you were honest about it, you wouldn't wear them anywhere. If you're a teenage girl, though, that's the way you wish they came. In fact, I think you have to spend extra money to get the holes in the knees these days. And those jeans, the ones with the holes and with the tears, the ones that we would consider old and useless, really can't be used anymore for the purpose in which they were intended. They're not really suitable to their original purpose any longer. And... If you were honest, and again, if you weren't a teenage girl, you'd throw them away. You would throw them away and you would dispense with them altogether. But there are going to be those, as you might imagine, who would want to preserve them, who just aren't ready to give them up, who, who feel like there's got to be some way to save them. The desire to save maybe is a good one, but in this case, you ought to look at what you have in front of you and recognize it's a pointless effort in this case. These jeans are not salvageable. Now, what if instead of repairing that old garment, though, that old pair of jeans, Somebody were to come up to you, maybe the garment maker himself, and say, tell you what, I'll give you a new pair of jeans. Here, take them. All right, now you're in the circumstance of having this old pair and this new pair in both hands. What are you going to do? What's the sensible thing to do? Jesus makes the point in the parable that no one of right mind is going to take the new pair of jeans and start cutting it up to make patches to make the old pair work again. I mean, that's, that's idiotic. I mean, on the one hand, you've ruined the new pair... And secondly, have you really improved the old pair at all? Walking around with a pair of jeans that are faded and torn except for these bright blue patches of new jean material, I mean, that looks... You wouldn't do that unless it was for a play or something. 
That would have no sense. And everyone who sees that, this is the part of the parable that's obvious, everyone who sees that comparison would agree with it. You never do that. And that's the point that he's making in that first part of the parable. Before we consider the larger spiritual issue here, let's take a look at the second comparison that's being drawn in the parable. Let's go on to the second piece before we get to the bigger issue. In the second piece of the parable, Christ describes placing wine in wineskins. Now, this takes just a few minutes of background. In Jesus' day, people didn't have glass bottles with corks. I hope you realize that. If we had to contain wine in a small carrying container, something suitable to go to the picnic with, for example, you didn't have any option in that day short of wineskins. Wine was stored in big clay pots or in big clay jars. That's not something you carried with you when you had to take a little wine to go out in the field for lunch. So to make it small and portable, they took animal skin, hide basically, stitched into a a small sack with an opening at one end, and they put wine in that, and that was the way you carried wine about. Now, the sacks, because they were animal skin, they would be strong and pretty flexible initially when they were brand new, but as soon as you put wine in there, they started to absorb the wine until the point of which they they basically got saturated. They wouldn't leak, but the, the wine would start to weaken the skin. And over time, as it held that wine, eventually it would give way. If you never drank the wine, that wineskin's not going to hold the wine very long. It's not intended to. If you had to store it for a long time, you keep it in the clay pot. This was temporary. And so a new wineskin is perfect for a new wine. You take it, you drink it. By the time you've drank all the wine, the wineskin's held up long enough to give you that opportunity. But if you were to take a wineskin that had been used to its limit, that was about to fall apart. The wine had been taken out of it, fortunately, so you hadn't lost any of it. But you've got now this used wineskin. No one of their right mind in that day would have thought to put more wine back into it. You're just asking for trouble. You do that, you might walk half a mile and it's just going to burst open anyway and you'll be covered in wine. What, what foolish thing to do, right? What, what, why would you do that? You would just go get a new wineskin and start over like you did the first time. That, again, is the obvious statement that would have been common and understood in that day. And Christ is basing his parable on the assumption that his audience understood this principle from everyday use. So he said, don't take an old container and put new wine in it. Use a new container. So what's his larger point? Now that we understand the basic, simple points being made, what are the larger points? Well, as it should be obvious, I hope to you by now, as he's speaking to the Pharisees, Christ is making a point to them about how the old religious order that the Pharisees had propped up and made their system of power, this whole system of the Jewish law and all the rules and regulations that went upon it, that had made the Pharisees so powerful, that whole system of man-made rules was destined to be replaced. It was destined to wear out, and just like that old garment, you can't fix it, you can't patch it up, It's not suitable for correcting a few pieces here and then and moving on with it. It needs to be set aside and the new thing used. And that was Jesus' point. It's going to go away just like the old wineskin. It's going to be retired when the new wine is available. And just as God inaugurated a new covenant through Jesus, one that was going to bring new life, and therefore, out of necessity, it had to replace the old covenant, the law. Now remember, God never gave the law to the nation of Israel because they were going to be saved through the law. Paul tells us clearly that was never its purpose. But the Pharisees had made it that way for themselves. They had determined that the law would be the way that they would be saved. 
They determined that was the way that the people must be saved. And Jesus was there to say, number one, you're wrong. It never was to be the way you would be saved. But nevertheless, it needs to be put aside now because the new covenant has come. When the Messiah was to come, his ministry, according to the Pharisees, was simply going to fit within the existing system. You see how the Pharisees were not at all taken by Jesus? Jesus shows up with power and with words that seem to suggest he's the Messiah. By this point in his ministry, he had not made that claim definitively to them, certainly, or to even the crowds, for the most part. But the rumors were there. The thinking was there. People were starting to ask themselves, could this be the one? He's doing some of the things that our prophecy says the Messiah will do. But he's talking weird. You know, he's taking the law and all the Jewish culture that surrounds it, and he's essentially putting it aside. And he's proposing new things that we haven't heard before. And the Pharisees, of course, they imagine this. Messiah shows up on the scene, and what's the first thing the Messiah is going to do, if you're a Pharisee, when he shows up on the scene? Take all the Pharisees, get them together, and pat them on the back and say, thank goodness for you guys. Thank goodness I've had somebody here while I was away preparing the people with these wonderful rules. Thank goodness you've been here to enforce the law and keep it strong. Hadn't been for you guys, they probably would have left the law long ago. Thank goodness we have you Pharisees watching out over the people. And when Jesus shows up, acting and talking like the Messiah, but telling them that telling these guys that they don't know what they're doing, telling these guys that everything they're propping up is wrong, well, how do you think the Pharisees felt about that? Well, first of all, he can't be the Messiah. Obviously, he's not the Messiah. Secondly, they're looking at this guy saying, you're dangerous. You're, you're just downright trouble. We're going to have to figure out a way to get you off the scene before you start messing with the minds of all these people that we have under our control. So there's no doubt they were going to be opposed to him. He did nothing the way they expected it to be done. I'll tell you, even Christians today can fall back into that thinking from time to time. And if you've been in church any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. I think it's common even today. I hear this on the radio occasionally. I read it occasionally. It's common to see churches today even teaching in many regards in the same way, either by suggestion or maybe even directly, some of the things the Pharisees would have been saying in their day. Things like the law is still in some part a way of our Christian experience. Taking the old garment and finding some way with the new to patch the two together. There are some Christians today who would tell you, for example, that parts of the law still apply. And if I had to ask you which parts still apply, you'd all give me the same answer, right? The Ten Commandments. That's the easy answer, right? That's got to be true. Ten Commandments must still apply. Maybe the rest of it's gone, but that part, we know that's good. I mean, we saw Charlton Heston. I mean, you wouldn't have had those things come off the mountain that way if they weren't so important. Then there's another group, I think, that takes an even stronger view. There are Christians out there that say, well... Not only the Ten Commandments, but all the moral law, whatever that is. We just don't have to follow the sacrificial system and the ceremonial law anymore. We still, though, are obligated to keep the moral law, certainly. And there's even finally a few, very limited, fortunately, but there are a few Christians that argue that the law itself in its entirety should still be applied in some sense. But Jesus argues out of these parables that the two can't mix at all. If you understand the parable, if you understand the notion of the old and the new can't mix at all, then you're left with a conclusion that's absolutely unavoidable. There is nothing in the law which will remain after the new covenant has been given. And the Ten Commandments, folks, are part of the law. 
The Ten Commandments and all that goes with the rest of the law are gone. All that remains is grace under the New Covenant. Now, you may look at me and you can say, well, wait a minute, are you proposing that we go out and break the Ten Commandments? No more than I'm proposing you do anything else that would be unrighteous. No, of course not. We live now under a law called the law of Christ. The law of Christ is love your neighbor as you love yourself. And before that, love your God above all other things. All the commandments, Christ says, hang on those two commandments. Try keeping those two commandments and not also keeping the law. In the sense that if I'm really loving my neighbor as I love myself and loving God above all else... I'm not going to violate those Ten Commandments or any other. Plus, I'm going to do a lot of things the law never provided for in the first place. It is a more encompassing, a more demanding requirement, in fact. But it's one that's living, where the Holy Spirit in me now is that day-to-day guide. Gee, I, I wonder, should I criticize this person or not? You know, they really hurt me, and they did some things I don't like, and I really feel like telling them what they did to me, and I really feel like calling them to task for their mistake, but... God, should I do that or not? And in that quiet moment, as you appeal to Him and His Holy Spirit is in you, He'll give you that answer. And you feel the answer come to you. No, let it go. No, I don't want to do that. I'm right. Let it go. Okay, I'll let it go. I don't know how it's going to work to my advantage, but God, I don't even need it to be to my advantage. You tell me to let it go, I'll let it go. Now, if I had been living by the law, you know what I would have been able to do? Let's see. Does it say that when John did that to me, I have to walk away? Hey, it's not in the law. Cool. I get to go up and tell John what I think of him. See how the law worked? Written on stone, it didn't move. It didn't change. It didn't vary. It didn't give opportunity for circumstances to be considered. But now I live by a law of Christ living in me. I can appeal directly to the source and at every moment of my life gain His insight on what I'm to do and He can walk my, tailor my walk according to righteousness through me. That's the living law of Christ that we are all under once we come to be a part of the new covenant. The old law has been put to death. It is gone. In Galatians, Paul uses the analogy of a child to illustrate how this one covenant replaces the old. He says, we are like a child. He calls us essentially an orphan, somebody who is under a guardian. Think of it like foster care. If you were a child without parents, but you had to be placed in foster care for a time, your foster parents are your guardians. And you're obligated to obey them, aren't you? Forever? No, only as long as you're under their care. If you leave that foster home, they're no longer over you, are they? They don't have some natural authority over you. It only exists as long as you're under their care. Paul uses that analogy in Galatians 3. And he says, at some point, we become an adopted child of God. God becomes now our adopted parent. And that adoption is for life. We'll never need another parent. Having been adopted out of that foster care, that guardian that we had is no longer over us at all. And this is how he says it in three verses, starting in chapter 3, verse 23 in Galatians. He says, but before faith came, now that's faith in the new covenant. Before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become a tutor. Think of it as a guardian. To lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Once you accept the new covenant by faith, you don't have any concerns anymore for the authority of the prior guardian, the law. That tutor has done its job in leading you to your permanent adopted family. 
to the new covenant. Having done that, it serves no more purpose. In in Romans, Paul makes a similar comparison using a different analogy. He uses the analogy of a widow. How many times can a woman be married? As many times as her husband dies. Right? Under the law, there's no such thing as an appropriate purpose for divorce. So, if you wish to remarry, you have to wait for the first husband to die. Hopefully not at your own hands. And then, once you're freed out of the marriage that you did have because of the death of the husband, you can freely and without regard for sin, go marry again. Paul says you can make the same comparison to how we were once under the law, but now we have died to it and we are now under a new covenant. He says this in Romans 7, 2. Again, just three verses. He says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. She's no longer obligated to him. She is free to remarry. So then, if while her husband is living... She joined to another man, she'd be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So we all understand that principle, right? Then Paul says this in 7.4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him, to Christ, in other words, in other words, who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit to God. He ends in Romans 7, 6, But now we have been released from the law, having died to it, by which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What a beautiful picture he's drawing. We were under the law. All men are born under the law. You know, that's the basic principle of Scripture. God said, you want to be holy? You want to deserve heaven? No problem. Here's what you do to do it. Here's what I have determined gets you into heaven. And by the way, God made heaven. He made you. He gets to determine what the rules are for how how you get in. That's the way it works. So God said, you want to be in heaven? Here are the rules. I call it my law. Do everything in this rule book perfectly. Never mess up one time in your entire life. That's the standard God put in place. If you can do that, you deserve entry in heaven. I can't stop you. You've earned it. But of course, the problem is, by the time we even understand that's what the rule is, we've already broken most of them a dozen times over. Now what do we do? We're shut out of heaven. We have no hope. But we're still under that rule. That's the rule. That's the standard we have to meet. Paul says, God knew we couldn't do it. I mean, he's not a, he knows it better than we do. And so he said, if you were to die to that law, in other words, as the husband, if you were to die, you would be free to remarry. Well, wait a minute. Last time I checked, none of us have died yet, right? How did he accomplish that? How did he manage to get us to die to this law so that we are free now to remarry, if you will, to come under a new standard, a new covenant? Paul says that we died in Christ. That when Christ was dying on that cross, the Father said His death will substitute for the death of anyone who accepts that substitution. Who says, you know what? I want that deal. When he dies and I get to die with him by, by association, I'll be free to accept entrance into heaven on the basis of something other than my ability to keep the law. That's a good deal. I'd like to have that deal. That's the new covenant. That's the gospel message. When the father put his son to death, he was permitting all believers to join in that death and therefore gain the acceptance of heaven on the basis of some new standard. 
No longer are we being judged now on the standard of keeping a law. Instead, we're being judged on a different standard. That different standard is that Christ kept the law. He did live his entire life without breaking the law, but God the Father says, instead, I'm going to put all your sin on him. Let him die the death you should have. You're now freed from the law, and I'm going to credit to you the good he did. So your entrance into heaven is based on his work, not your own. It's like a swap. What a great deal. What a fantastic deal. It only requires that we believe that and base our salvation on it. Here's the hard part. You can't add it to something else. You see, trusting in that, truly trusting that, means you have to be willing to say, I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. I thought I was getting to heaven on the basis of this, that, and the other. But I'm willing to put all those aside, trust in none of them, and only trust in what the Gospel tells me to trust in. Trust that Christ did all the work that I needed done. Now all I have to do is rely on it. You know the problem with this? You don't know if you're right or not until you die. That's where the trust comes in. You'll have bet all your eggs on the Jesus basket. And if it turns out that you're wrong, it's too late. But that's what true trust is. True trust is saying, I'm so sure I'm right that I don't need a backup plan. I'm so sure I'm right, I'm not going to invest any time in Buddha, Islam, a little bit of New Age stuff on the side. I'm not going to pick up anything else and assume it has the power to save me. I trust exclusively in this one thing. That is true faith. Anything short of that, and you haven't trusted in it. And God says, you're back under plan A. You're having to work the law, which no one can do. Today we're going to celebrate an important commandment of our Lord, the baptism of believers. And as I end the message for today, we're going to have an opportunity to recognize those two young people here today. We mentioned a moment ago that we all died to the law through Jesus. Those who accept his death have seen themselves cut from the requirement of the law. Well, just like Jesus, just like in the way he died, we also get to share in another aspect of his work. We get to share in the aspect of his work called resurrection. Just as we die with him by accepting his, his substitution, we also look forward to being resurrected as he did. Cameron, who is chilling out over there with his mom. Hey, Cameron. And Mariah, who is back there, are the two today who have made a decision, have said that they do trust in Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit have come to that decision. And now they're looking forward to the resurrection of the new life that we all have waiting for us as well. The Lord, though, Christ, gave us an ordinance, a requirement. In fact, He only gave us two, according to Scripture. There's only two things He asked that we would do, specifically. One would be that we honor the Lord's Supper by remembering that day in our own pattern of worship. And then secondly, He asked that we would baptize believers. I want to make sure that the understanding is clear, not just for them, but for everyone in here, about why we baptize, why God gave us that commandment, and what it means. It's very simple. Remember the idea of a parable? I take something you understand really easily, and I use it as a picture to draw a comparison to something that's a lot deeper, a lot more difficult perhaps to understand. That's what baptism is. It's a living parable, if you will. Jesus said, just as when you are buried after death, you're put into the ground... And yet, if God resurrects you, and He has the power to do that, He brings you back from the dead. He brings you back to a new life. Paul uses an analogy in Corinthians of a seed. He says, God takes a seed, puts it in the ground, or you would take a seed rather, put it in the ground, and out of it comes a totally different creature. This big plant that looks nothing like the seed did. It's almost as if one completely turned into the other. 
And we do that every day and we don't think another thing of it. We just take it for granted. Yeah, you put a little seed in the ground, up comes this giant plant. What's the big deal? Well, if you accept that so easily with no concern at all, then what's so hard to understand about God putting a body in the ground out of which can come an entirely different kind of body, a new body, he says, one that's not corrupted by sin, one that will live forever. That's what the resurrection will create for believers. Of course, he does that for unbelievers as well, he says. All men will be resurrected. The difference is what he does with you after he resurrects you. Today, we're going to celebrate baptism because it's such a beautiful picture of that coming event. By faith, by their profession of faith, these two young people are saying they believe that when their bodies die, they will be given a new body, that they'll be resurrected into new life. And the picture they're about to carry out today with our help is a picture of that process of being buried, in this case, going underwater, as if being buried in the ground, but then coming right back up out of the water in new life. In their cases, that life is spiritual. At this point, the only change taking place is that their spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit, has been given new life. They have been given a new spirit, one that they will keep eternally. They're just waiting for the second half to kick in, just like the rest of us. We have this new spirit inside the old body. And that's the war that Paul talks about, about us knowing better now what to do, but still sometimes failing to do it. That time when we all receive the new body is yet to come. So the picture in baptism is of our hope for that day to come, when we will receive a new body. But it's important mentioning as we end that the, the idea of baptism is just a picture. No one is saved because they go into the water and come out. No one is guaranteed heaven because they submitted to baptism. No, the baptism is merely a picture, a picture of what's already taken place in their hearts by virtue of faith. It is simply our way of publicly declaring what we know to be true. And in that is the reason we do it. We do it because we were asked to do it, because God commanded us to do it. But we do it also understanding what it means. So, Cameron, you want to come up here? Could you bring your parents too? And Mariah. But all I wanted to do right here was pray over you all with the help of the other men of the church and just pray a blessing, ask God to bless the time we have, bless your life and all that He has to do through it, and mostly just to thank Him for bringing you to faith at such an early age. What a, what a miracle it is that the youngest in our, in our fellowship could know what some of us only knew as adults. Father, I thank You so much, so very much, Father, for the gift of Your Holy Spirit. Father, the Holy Spirit is the means by which we can know You. You say in Your Word that no one can come to know Jesus unless the Father first would draw Him. And the drawing, Father, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And Father, for reasons we do not know, but we are so happy to understand, Father, for reasons we could never fully appreciate, you have called these two young people at an early age. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, they have come to know you. And to the limits of their abilities, they have been able to express that, Father, that they have come to believe something that they know to be sure. And so, Father, in a moment of celebration and obedience, we want to go through the baptism today, Father, to recognize the work of your Holy Spirit. For Cameron, Father, and for Moriah, I lift them up. Father, You would not have called them if You did not have a purpose. You would not have brought them into the family of God if You did not have a plan for how to put them to work in that way. So, Father, I pray for a glorious work. I pray, Father, that in their lives we would see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We would see them being used by You, Father, that the glory of God would be seen in them. We pray, Father, that their work for the benefit of the body would be known, that it would be magnified, Father, not just by their faith, but by those around them who support them in the body. 
Father, we also pray for the event itself as we go out to be baptized today. Father, I pray that you would be with us, that it would not be to our glory. It would not be a production, Father, that takes our attention off you. It would be simple. It would be humble. It would be much like the baptisms of the very early years in the church, where a man or a woman who knew you looked down and said, I find water, may I be baptized. And in that simple way, Father, we would carry out your commandment. And Father, we pray these things knowing that we do all things to your glory. And without perhaps, Father, fully understanding why, but not needing to know, only needing, Father, to understand what you've told us and to comply. We thank you, Father, for the chance to witness in this way, to go through a baptism. I do pray in Jesus' name.